Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Rob Long, one of the founders and editors at Ricochet.com. The podcast you're about to hear is a production of Ricochet.com, and if you haven't gone to visit us on the web, we invite you to do so. We are the fastest-growing, smartest, most civil conversation anywhere on the internet, and we invite you to become a member. Now, as a member, you get all the podcasts, including our famous flagship podcast between me, Peter Robinson, and James Lilacs comes out weekly. You also get to comment and contribute to the conversations on the member feed and the main feed. And now, for the cost of a yearly membership, you also get a year-long subscription to National Review Digital. That's the digital version of the magazine. So now you can read me and James Lilacs and Mark Stein and all of our Ricochet friends who are crossover between Ricochet and National Review in a handy PDF format. So if you subscribe to Ricochet and become a member, you get Ricochet and the podcasts and the conversations and now a year's subscription to National Review Digital. Please go to ricochet.com and join today. Hello and welcome to the I'm not calling it what the, it's a clop. That's just stupid. But the, the, the podcast, I'm Rob Long, I've got Jonah Goldberg, John Fordor. It's, it's our, uh, our uh, regular podcast we're doing, and I don't know what we're going to call it, but I don't want to call it clop. This is number three or four, or maybe even five. We're happy to have you. Welcome. It is a production of ricochet.com. If you haven't gone to ricochet.com, go there right now, R I C O C A G T dot com. It's the fastest growing, most interesting, wittiest, most civil conversation on the web. It's a place to connect to center-right members from all across the country and the world and also have meaningful conversations with our contributors and our members. Welcome. On the line with me, as always, is Jonah Goldberg in Washington, D.C. Jonah, how are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm pretty well. I'm actually sitting outside in a screened-in porch at, uh, in, in Wallen, Tennessee. I'm at a fundraising a weekend for the Southern Foodways Alliance at Blackberry Farm which is an unbelievably beautiful place. And every year I come, it's, ter- it's incredibly cold uh, and icy and snowy and beautiful, but just cold. And this year it's unseasonably warm. And we're all sitting outside. And um, so if you hear uh, birds chirping or, or, or the wind rustling through the trees, that's what it is. It really is there that. Is. I sent my uh, wife and daughter off this morning, pre-dawn, on a 10-day trip to Hawaii where they're going to hang like out with my in-laws, and so I'm home alone with the quadrupeds, and I'm not quite running around with a spaghetti strainer as a cod piece yet, but that seems to be the direction I'll be heading, um, and uh, um, I plan on eating most of my meals over the sink. So, what you, are you, did you, did you, uh, the, when, you, when, you, when you sent them off, and you like, you, they're in the car, and you, you're in the house, and you realize you're alone. Is there any one what, – what, isn't there a general feeling of relief for you? Do you ever think to yourself, I'm going to take off my pants right now? Um, well, you're, you, you think that somehow the presence of my wife keeps me from taking off my pants. I was, but, I was, uh, hoping, I was hoping that you would take that bait and ride uh, into it. <laughs> um, it's, it's a really weird mixture of – Gosh, I've got the whole, you know, sort of risky business. I've got the whole house to myself kind of feeling to, oh, man, I'm all alone. You know, it's just, it's, 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 I mean, John knows the feeling. It, it's, it, it gets, it gets. I, I know the feeling without ever, ever, ever having been alone in my own house <laughs> since I had children. I, I believe I've been alone in my own house. I have an eight and a half year old. I believe I've been alone in my own house for about seven hours. 
<laughs> since well, we she was born. See, that would feel pretty good. Seven so, hours. Yes. Yeah. So uh, I, I I know the feeling theoretically, and uh, I have absolutely no experience of it practically. My recommendation to you, Jonah, is to get that spaghetti strainer and just ride it for all it's worth. <laughs> uh, so, as uh, you might have guessed, we are joined by John Podoritz in New York City. And I, I don't even want to say, John, how are you? Because I, I, feel, I feel like the answer would be beleaguered. I am not beleaguered at all. I will say that um, uh, I'm in despair, but, uh, but thank God I have my health. That's and, right. Uh, you know, I, I think that's really the most important thing, that I have my health so <laughs> that, so that uh, the next four years should, should spread, should be laid out in front of me in a slow, orderly, you know, march into the La Brea Tar Pits. Poor health, poor health would distract you from the horror of what's going on out that's, there. That's exactly <laughs> right. I really need to contemplate it. At least with, I have that before. Uh, with, um, with existential dread and seriousness. And so well, that's now, what I'm going to try to Is this normal? I mean, I mean, how was uh, – uh, uh, Jonah, how was Christmas? Was it good? Christmas was good. Um, everything went well. Uh, grandma, my mom, came in um, and uh, made quite a quite the grandma scene. And what does that mean? Uh, what does that mean in the Goldberg house? She she uh, she she uh, she overloads everyone with presents. Uh, well, it, it's all about the one child. You know, that's yeah. there's only one Goldberg progeny out there, and. Um, and it's essentially my mom's namesake. So as you can imagine, um, it looks like a window of Saks Fifth Avenue on Christmas right. Eve with presents right. in the air. And um, the best thing that Lucy got, which was super awesome, which I would have killed for when I was her age, although growing up in New York in the 1970s, it would have been stolen from me in Riverside Park in about four minutes. Um, we got her this – or I should say Santa got her a – uh, electric scooter that oh, is man. so badass. It only goes about eight miles an hour tops. It goes about as fast as a bike at normal cruising, but and it only runs on about a half hour charge. But it is so cool. And the second she got it, she started riding in front of all the neighbors' houses with have kids just to show off. It was really cool. I, so I she, want she's one. Goldberg through through showing off her new toy. Yes. I want one. I want one. <laughs> you should. It's really cool. I, I see, like, so want one. I can't even begin to tell you. <laughs> so, John, um, good Christmas. Uh, well, you know, we uh, we in the Podhorse household do not celebrate uh, pagan uh, holidays, um, but I will say that uh, I was in your uh, fair city uh, uh, Christmas time. Speaking uh, of not speaking, Rob, of I was in. I was in. Uh, I was in Los Angeles and had a wonderful time. And I, I had the fascinating experience of taking my, my two-year-old, my, my, my older kids also, but my two-year-old son who is being a two-year-old boy obsessed with trains, to the astonishing Angel's Flight. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's this oh, yeah. 1901 um, train in downtown L.A. that, that it, it, it takes a minute. It goes up a very steep hill. It's a funicular, um, I think they call it. It's right. It's a funicular railway. So the car itself is is like a staircase uh, 
there are sort of 10 rows and each row is on its own step. It's built into the side of this hill. Um, it's really a beautiful thing and it's a fascinating cultural experiment in American failure because at the bottom of the hill uh, uh, basically is skid row. That is, you have this sort of street, there are a lot of bums, an old-fashioned skid row, bums lying there, you know, 9 o'clock right. Sunday morning with bottles and things like that. And then the, the, the train goes up for a minute and you end up at the top of the hill and at the top of the hill is a failed... 1960s uh, office development, you know, one of those towers in the park, as they were called, you know, a building set back against from the street, you know, with with big plazas and, you know, a fountain and this and that. And it's completely dead and no one's there and you're sort of at the top. And then so you have this bad 1960s architecture, which is all of downtown L.A., which is like Brasilia without the life. And then you go down the hill and you're on Skid Row. So as an Amer- as an as a as a sociological American experiment, um, it's, it's pretty. You, you just you described a fun outing. Outing. It was great, though. Yeah. The train, the Angels' flight. If anybody yeah. goes to L.A. Well, uh, and is anywhere near downtown L.A., this is something that must be seen. It's well, this I would, I would, can I just as a as a caution say it must be seen. I for. Just, just, just as a, as a local, I can give you. There's just two little um, adjustments I'd make. One is that didn't actually Skid Row. That's kind of a nice part of downtown where all the bums were. Not there. on Sunday morning, it's not. Yeah, well, you know, compared compared to other parts of downtown, it really is. It's sort of that's the that's the glamorous Fifth Avenue. Um, <laughs> it, it, when you're in Skid Row in, in in L.A., you know it. I mean, it's not you're not like there's not a few little stage set uh, bums hanging around. There's tents on the street. Uh, you can't walk on the sidewalk. Uh, it's it can be a pretty uh, it's it's an un, un, um, un unimaginable scene really for you know a great example of urban liberalism right there. Uh, and the second thing, is I, you know, I actually thought they closed that thing down because not a, maybe a couple of years ago it broke and the train raced downhill and slammed and killed somebody um, on the actual train. A couple of years ago, so they. I guess they fixed it. I guess. Well, I think they so, fixed it. It's it's right there. It goes okay. up and down for for fifty cents, and uh, and I'm glad that I didn't know about that before I did it because yeah, uh, my wife would never have gone on it. So uh, don't go, everybody. And now now that we now that we've wasted <laughs> right. ten don't minutes of blather, yeah. yeah. Well, also, I, I, this, anytime I yeah. hear the word funicular, I can't get the song funiculi funicular out of my head. Yeah. For, for, so. <laughs> Exactly. Right. Well, I, I too was in. On, uh, I, I, how how strange that I was on a funicular too, uh, uh, John. Over the little break, I was in Paris, as, as one does uh, the city of light, and um, and uh, I took a huge walk one day, and then uh, came down um, from uh, from the little top of Sacre Coeur, which is actually a part of town Montmartre that I, I kind of don't like. Um, but there's a little funicular there, and I had a pocket full of. Uh, uh, of, of metro tickets I wasn't going to use, and so I took the funicular down. So, in the, in a weird way, you and I both took little funicular, stupid railways um, yes. over the break. It brings us closer together. Um, there you go. There was a kind of bonding experience there. Mystical. Now, now it, it is it, so. So, I just want to catch up on a few of the big things that happened uh, that we 
you, the three of us have not had a chance to talk about. And I, and I, have, and I, I don't want to trot over like – I know we've all sort of talked about this already a million times, but the three of us have not talked about it. And it, it does – it is interesting to me. Al Gore sells current TV, this basically cut-rate BS nonsense thing. And he sells it to Al Jazeera. And two things you have to give him credit for. One, I mean he put enough effort and time. I don't know whether he made any money on this uh, or, or, the, or Joel Hyatt or whoever the investors in current TV ultimately made any money in it. Um, but they built up this asset and someone else wanted to buy it and they sold it. And okay, congratulations to them. My two questions are, one, is Al Jazeera really bad? Because I kind of like watching Al Jazeera online during the Arab Spring. And the second question is, is Al Gore really that bad? I mean, I know he's a he's a prig and a loser and a, and a moron, but do you really think he, he, he twirled his mustache and tried to arrange this deal so that he would avoid taxes and stuff? I mean, how, how, how dastardly is this guy? Um, Jonah? All right, I'll, I'll leap in here. Um, I think uh, the answers to the first two questions are yes and yes. Um, wow. Good. Part of the problem with Al Jazeera, Al Jazeera English is okay, but part of the problem with it is that it's sort of like Yasser Arafat's old shtick of saying peace, love, democracy in English and then kill the Jews in Arabic um, because the Arabic version of Al Jazeera is really pretty bad. Um, and the English version is, is basically designed to lend credibility to the Arabic version, and both of them are basically instruments of what is it, Qatari foreign policy, not Qatari um, – Dubai foreign interests, whatever, or national interest. No, that's Qatari. Qatari, Qatari, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, maybe we can call Al Gore a Qatari Democrat. Oh, flashback. Anyway, oh, that's, uh, good. that's good. <laughs> um, and uh, my understanding is that Gore didn't manage to succeed with the tax part of it, but you left out the really fantastic part, right, is that the Blaze, uh, Glenn Beck's operation, wanted to buy current or or inquired about current buying current and before even hearing what beck was willing to pay for it gore and his colleagues said no we're not going to consider selling to you because we only want to sell to someone who shares our values (laughs) and so glenn beck clearly didn't meet that cut but al jazeera does and that is a that is a really pretty pregnant thing to say insight into sort of elite (laughs) liberalism that um an american you know right-wing outfit is beyond the pale fine fair enough if you're a liberal you can think that but that al jazeera isn't and that it's okay to take a hundred million dollars in oil in in oil money and be al gore rather than to take a hundred million dollars from glenn beck yeah a hundred million dollars from uh from a um uh a, a, a dick, an oil dictator, who uh, from a censored and fully controlled news uh, pseudo news organization, <laughs> owned wholly owned by an oil dictator, an oil king, is somehow more palatable. It's every every aspect of of this should should stick in Al Gore's crawl. He's yeah, he's the one who laid the foundation of this. We're not going to sell to someone who doesn't share our values thing. So you get yeah. to hold him accountable to what are his values and his value. I, mean, I remember writing a column five years ago. Remember when the first Pixar movie Cars came out? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and Al Gore has this whole thing in his books about how we have how 
the internal combustion engine is the central focus of evil in the modern world, and we have to wean people off of it. And I remember writing this column saying, you know, how come Al Gore isn't condemning this movie, which is indoctrinating little kids to love cars? And, um, and Al Gore plays this game all the time where he says this stuff to the rubes on the left that they all eat up while he's now worth actually more than Mitt Romney from playing this sort of crony capitalist stuff. And, and, and the story ends with him taking nearly $100 million in petrodollars from the Middle East. It's just a fascinating – it's a Tom Wolfian kind of thing. Well, I think it's a little more sinister than this in this one sense, Wait, which is more in the end – no, but here's why. I mean, because that's you know hypocrisy and you know and 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 comic hypocrisy and all sorts of things. You know that Al Gore, the student of um, of of Marty Parrott's, uh, his uh, intellectual sponsor, the former editor of the owner of the New Republic, who is one of who is basically the leading and maybe the last you know sort of like hardline Zionist uh, Democrat, the man who chose Joe Lieberman as his running mate, is 12 years after that. You know, selling out, literally selling out um, to uh, to a network that regularly hosts, uh, you know, Islamists and and anti-Semites and people who say things like Israel will be gone in ten years, ominously. Now, here's the sinister part: Al, Al Jazeera apparently paid about five hundred million dollars for current. It is not worth five hundred million dollars. Glenn Beck would not have offered it five hundred million dollars. Nobody would have offered it $500 million. Its revenue, which is about $100 million, came entirely from the fees that cable companies paid to have it on the air. That number was going to go down and you know, go down over time as they canceled it because it you know, drew nobody. And there was no longer any reason to make nice to Al Gore, who no longer had any political power. So right. the question is, why did Al Jazeera pay $500 million? And who from, Al, who from current is going to be on Al Jazeera's board? Well, the answer is it's not Joel Hyatt, his partner, Gore's partner, the, son, the son-in-law of former Senator Howard Metzenbaum and an ambulance-chasing lawyer you know, who started an ambulance-chasing firm, the fir- one of the first to advertise on television in the 1980s. That's right. It is... Al Gore, former vice president of the United States, um, you know, uh, winner of the popular vote in the 2000 election. They paid $500 million to get Al Gore as their front man. And that is sinister. That That's is really sinister. I haven't quite worked it out that way, but it, but it is true. I mean, if you look at it, just uh, I, I mean, assuming for a minute Al Jazeera wants um, a, a channel on – you know, these channels do get sold. They get bought and they get sold. And sometimes you buy a channel um, that has you know, very low value uh, or has a very low uh, uh, audience, and you revamp it and you turn it into something big. That happens all the time. So I'm not I'm not sure about the actual price uh, of what what current would fetch if it was sort of up for auction. But if you're Al Jazeera with those pockets, you'd probably spend more and get a, spend a little bit more. And get a whole lot more, and spend a hundred million or whatever it was to buy, to buy current. It just doesn't seem, it doesn't seem like a pretty, it doesn't seem like a very good deal for current for for Al Jazeera, unless, as John says, there was they were buying some other product, which I guess is Al Gore. But why? I mean, it, it also 
it has a little for you, bit. For you, it doesn't mean anything. For them to say that they are have such credibility that the former vice president of the United States is on their board and you know is a consultant to them uh, was worth several hundred million dollars. That's 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 I think an inarguable fact. Media companies often overpay because they want things. Rupert Murdoch, my erstwhile sometime employer, um, you know, overpaid for the Wall Street Journal because he right. needed it and he wanted to overcome resistance to his buying it. Um, that happens. That's part of the way deals are made. So, but you have to ask yourself why. Why overpay? Al Jazeera English, by the way, is on cable systems all across the United States. Not not many. Not How and many? by the way, you can't get it. In it's LA. not clear. It's not clear that current that the current whatever succeeds current whatever they call it will 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 retain the clearances that that current had. Like Time Warner Cable in New York City has already announced that they will not be carrying the successor network. So. Again, you have to ask, you know, you have to say cui bono. And there are two people who benefit, and one of them is Al Gore and his partners who have cashed out on a, on a, on a poorly performing, non existent cable channel um, that got its clearance largely as a result of his political influence. And he is now cashed out because of his political influence. And you, you remember, I remember just in 1989 screams of outrage at the notion that Ronald Reagan, the former president of the United States, was going right. to Japan to deliver five speeches for $2 million. You remember that? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. how dare he, how dare he? The horror, the right. monstrousness of cashing out after your presidency. What kind of disgusting conduct is this? How much money a year does Bill Clinton make? In oh, speaking God. fees, I think it's something like twenty million dollars a year. It's enormous. So, it's enormous. Uh, you know, it is. You know, we remain in this world of this preposterous doubles the double standard that says that it's perfectly fine for Barack Obama to have no women in in the cabinet, but what's, it's an outrage that Mitt Romney should say that you know he wanted women candidates for his off. You know, to you know, it's, yeah, a, it's an insult, it's, it's, an offensive outrage. You know, this is just just naked, unjust, you know, partisan monstrousness, and it goes on forever. It yeah, doesn't uh, go on forever. It does, it, it, it's driving me crazy. I just like reading the uh, you know, scanning the the uh, the Politico stuff um, in the airport, um, of flying here to Knoxville, and it, it's staggering how we we make fun of Mitt Romney's binders full of women. And then when someone mentions to Jay Carney, boy, Barack Obama's cabinet is awfully male, he kind of rolls his eyes like, what a rube for even asking. That's just that's outrageous. Listen, I don't care. I don't care. Me neither. I but- don't care what the gender makeup is of Barack Obama's cabinet. But Barack Obama's supposed to care. You know, that's who he is. That's whom he represents. That you know, he is the apotheosis of people who care about proportional representation by gender and race and ethnicity and sexual conduct and all of that. That's that's his bailiwick. That's his party. That is the worldview that he represents. Jonah, do you have? But the, uh, so of course the... he's exempt from it. When he wishes to exempt himself from it, he can exempt himself of it with a wave of his hand. Well, but it's, it's, Jonah, it's, but it's, you have the mesh strainer on. Are you, are you wearing the cod piece yet? Because I want you to come in here. Um, it, it's uh, but it's it, it, I mean it, 
it's even more sinister than that because I mean, maybe, wow, maybe, even, wow this so oh, there's so much sin- sinister. <laughs> maybe, maybe we should call this the more sinister episode. No, um, yeah. uh, because forget the hypocrisy of Obama not caring about the gender balance of his cabinet, which I agree, I don't care about either. I mean, and it's a fun thing to ding him on this, but think about the hypocrisy of criticizing Mitt Romney. About the binder thing, what Mitt Romney said was that he did exactly what feminist bean counters should would want him to do. He realized his cabinet in Massachusetts wasn't uh, didn't achieve gender parity. He wanted more women, and he went out to basically feminist go- good government groups right. and said, "Send me lists of qualified nominees." And all he used was the word binder. As, 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 as the vessel that held the lists and somehow in a – what I thought was a truly Orwellian, bizarre kind of deeply creepy moment in American politics that no rational liberal could ever explain, adequately at least, they made him saying – I requested binders full, you know, we got binders full of women. I requested big lists of women, and we staffed my administration with lots of capable and qualified women, gave lots of women a good start, and they turned that into a sexist thing. This is why, this is why playing this game, which is what so many people on the right do, playing the Me Too game, playing the, no, I'm a good guy because I also am going to do this kind of stuff. Is a is a loser's game and a and a and a and a and a preposterous errand because there's nothing that you can do that will that will be satisfactory because it's not about what it appears to be about. It's true. That is true. It's I not about remember. female representation in the cabinet. If it were true, then George W. Bush would would have been you know yeah, the world's greatest Bill. president. I, I do remember having some 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 liberal person shout at me. Like, uh, I mean, I don't know why they're shouting at me. I'm such a squish. But someone shouted at me like, uh, "It was Susan Rice, you know, the, the opposition to Susan Rice for Secretary of State. It's clearly racist." And I'm like, for a minute, like really, for about 35 seconds, I thought, "Oh well, you know, I don't know how to argue." Wait, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> Republicans already nominated and confirmed and had an African American female Secretary of State. Her name was Condoleezza Rice. I totally forgot that. The Republicans hadn't had a white male Secretary of State since Larry Eagleburger twenty years ago. Yeah, but he, he was he was big enough for a lot. Of, yeah, yeah, speaking of, but I, I remember saying the name and then the look on the face of the person, like, oh yeah, right, oh okay. Yeah, okay, forget that then. Next thing. Like, yeah. Well, how about speaking of which, speaking of which, we have the nomination of Chuck Hagel to be Secretary of Defense. The Deputy Secretary of Defense is Michelle Flournoy, universally, even by Republicans, admired for her skill and her knowledge. Um, and there Obama goes, picking a white male Republican from Nebraska instead of a female who would have been the first female secretary of defense who would have sailed through instead of having a big fight where are the objections where are the objections imagine it in reverse imagine it in reverse imagine if the if 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 this were the second term of the mccain administration and he passed over the number two at defense who was a woman in favor of joe lieberman just think about that 
It's unthinkable. It's unthinkable. There would be headlines, three days of stories on the front page of the New York Times about the retrogressive Republican refusal, you know, to advance women in these key areas. Why do people hate Hegel so much? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll lateral this one off to John and play clean. I, I actually, I, I heard why do we hate, and then I, I just thought, well, you know, because, but I, I didn't hear what the, I didn't hear what the object of the hate was. Why, why do Hegel. people hate, hate Hegel so much? Who? It's not. First of all, it's not hatred. The objection to Chuck Hegel. There are there are three objections to Hegel. Some are quieter and some are louder. Hey, can I stop One, you right there? John, yeah. can I stop you right there? I, I, I don't want me interrupting. I, I have a question to, to ask. Do, do you have the three reasons that you hate Hegel, people hate Hegel right now in your head? Or do yes. you do what I do and say, I have three, there are three real reasons for that. Where we only have two, and you, you know you'll think of the third as you get to it. I got him. Okay, you got him. All right, you're got better him. than I. Go ahead. Okay. Sorry. Number one, um, he is a uh, he is Don't a pull a Rick Perry and say oops at three. <laughs> I do that too. <laughs> Number Sorry, one is the sort of naked partisan thing that uh, Obama chose him. Uh, because he is a turncoat Republican, and Republicans don't like that, don't like the notion that he should be rewarded for having effectively endorsed Obama in 2008, for having spent f- you know his last four year- the last four years attacking Republicans and praising the president's foreign policy, and for being sort of a front man in that way. That always happens. People don't like people in Washington don't like it when. Somebody from their party goes and you know speaks at the other convention, or in the case of Joe Lieberman, you know dares to endorse the Iraq War um, or whatever. Right. So that's that's number one. Uh, number two is a pattern of of, of expressions of uh, negative feeling toward Israel, which has been the case since the 80s and which people have talked about for a long time quietly and people who know him, I don't know him, but, you know, and, and these the stories about him, you know, attempting to shut down the, U, the USO in Haifa in the late 80s when he was running the USO, things that he said, things that he's done, kind of vocabulary that he's used – and obje- raising objections to that on the part of people who are supporters of Israel and who are, are bulwarks against anti-Semitism uh, and maybe overly sensitive at times or maybe overly you know, watchful at times, that's part of the process of life. Let him defend himself. Let him say it's not true. Let others say that it's a smear. That's fine. So that's number two. And then number three is the fact that he is being put up uh, – because it is an effort for Obama to say, you see, these sorts of views, views in which it is on the one hand fine to vote for the, for the war in Iraq, but on the other hand to have opposed the surge, arguably getting everything totally backwards, right? <laughs> um, uh, that this is, the kind of, this is the kind of visionary view of, of, of our national defense and its posture and our strategic views uh, that I want at the Pentagon. And that should be defended. In the end, I mean, as I wrote earlier this week, the president should get the cabinet secretaries that he wants, um, particularly if what they're really doing is expressing his worldview, and he right. is. 
Having said that, why shouldn't Chuck Hagel be put through the ringer like anybody else would? He's walked around. He's offended people. He's said things that I find offensive. I don't think they're necessarily disqualifying, although if they were said about a lot of other ethnic groups, they would instantly have been disqualifying. Um, and that's the reason. There you have it. Partisan, um, you know, sort of ethno-ethnic, and then, and right. then tactical and strategic. Oh, you actually had you three ready to go. I mean, that's so that's there. That's I didn't agree that you did or believe that you did. I just I I rarely do. Uh, Jonah, do you always when you said there are three reasons for this? Do you always have the three? No, no. Okay, but I, I do think that there is probably some brain scan technology that would reveal that your subconscious is actually telling you it's okay to say three because you're it knows you're going to be able to pull it up. You know what I mean? You never say four. Would you say four? Four is like that's pretty bold. Yeah, no, before it's crazy talk. And you don't um, say two because two sounds like it's too. It's like it's too binary. I don't know. Yeah, I think I, yeah. Uh, one last thing on the Hegel <laughs> thing because I, I I sort of agree with John's last point. Um, I think Hegel's a terrible pick. I don't think he's a particularly, particularly impressive guy. All those things. Um, I think at the very least he doesn't care about sounding like uh, he wants to piss off Jews or friends of Israel and all that kind of stuff, which is. Maybe maybe doesn't necessarily rise to the level of anti-Semitism, but being unconcerned about being called an anti-Semite is itself a kind of little small bore kind of intolerance that I don't like. Um, and eventually, what happens with a lot of people is that the distinction between the two starts to blur so much, and that way lies a kind of madness. And we've seen wait, that happen to some wait, people on the right. What do you What do you mean? I don't I don't I don't I don't follow you. Well, I mean, like you let you have someone like Pat Buchanan, who I have a lot of respect for in terms of uh-huh. his talents and his experience and all that kind of stuff. But he got caught up into this sort of vicious cycle. It's sort of like where Orwell talks about how a man can be a failure and take to drink and become all the more of a failure because he drinks. Um, he there was this sort of cycle where he sort of starts saying things. He, he says blunt truths, as he would put it, um, about Jews or Israel or whatever. And but he thinks he's being very careful, and he gets called an anti-Semite anyway. And the only people who cheer him on are the people who want him to go even further, you know. Right. And eventually, you get this sort of catalytic operation where you just become more and more of the caricature you originally were trying to avoid being. But anyway, that's not the point I want to get into. Um, the the point I simply want to make is that if Obama actually ab- agrees with Hegel politically, there is an argument to be made. That you want him in there because if you put in Flournoy, who lots of people on the right have celebrated and praised and mocked Obama for not picking and saying she would be so much better, and then she gets in there and she's going to have to do what Obama tells her to do too, right? And if he really wants to dismantle the military, if he really wants to pull us all back, she's going to have far more political cover to do exactly that. Um, than Hegel will. Because if Hegel, the second he does any of that stuff, we can all scream, ha-ha, we were right, you were, you were lying, this is exa- you appointed Hegel to be Hegel. And you know, right now, Hegel's denying that he's Hegel. He's saying he's a huge friend of Israel, he doesn't want to tear apart the military and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and in some ways, he's more boxed in as a Secretary of Defense than somebody else would be. Obama likes to keep comparing Hegel to Bill Gates, uh, to Robert Gates, sorry, um, as if they're the same thing because they were both Republicans. But, um, you know, Gates was hired truly to be a Republican to defend the Defense Department, and he defended the Defense Department sort of as a bureaucratic guy. 
Um, and so is Panetta. That's not what Hegel's being picked to do. He's not being picked to defend the Defense Department's prerogatives. He's, he's being picked to sort of be a Nixon to China guy to help tear the thing apart. And if that's really what Obama's agenda is, there's a certain honesty to it if we have someone like Hegel and they're doing it. Yeah, it doesn't See, seem seems to me that it's really more i mean i mean uh, i think israel is is sort of important although i i suspect that that if you're uh, that obama's posture there is benign neglect it seems to me this is about how do i get somebody in there who's going to go to zero troops in afghanistan as soon as possible and who's going to uh who's going to push through and has the credibility to push through um the massive cuts that i need doesn't seem like that. This is just like who? Who can I get? Who's good on Sunday talk shows? Who? Uh, who's sort of persuasive? Um, who could do all that? Uh, and and has the patience for it? I don't. I just kind of know what, what what I want, which is zero troops in Afghanistan and a, and a military that's a third smaller. The the one problem with these um, scenarios is the question of whether the uh, blowback against Hegel when his name started to get floated was the thing that pushed Obama finally into making the decision to pick him. In other words, is this, is this Barack Obama saying, you know, basically thumbing his nose at Bill Kristol more than it is not picking Michelle for really wanting Hegel? Now, obviously, Barack Obama is not going to make a pick in order to thumb his nose at Bill Kristol. But if you think in a more large context, uh, Obama is a very, very, very part player and he's got he has goals that are very complicated and one of the goals is he wants to take his opposition and grind them into the dirt that's part of what happened with the uh, fiscal cliff it's what's going to happen in in february with the uh, debt ceiling um he he is not just interested in you know proffering his own advantage and doing well and doing well for his party he believes, and he's got a lot of people on his side who believe, that the Republicans and the conservatives are so insane, so demented, so deranged, so out of their minds that they must be broken before the good things that the world needs can happen, <laughs> however you want to define them. And picking he's sort fight, of right in a weird perverse way. He's kind of right, but I, I, I get your point. But, but – and. Um, but which is fine, you know, it doesn't make him the we're we're not red states, we're not blue states, we're the United States. It makes him, you know, a very yeah. aggressive, um, you know, partisan ideological player, um, and uh, the sort of person that if he were on the right, um, people on the right would be thrilled to have as their you know champion because he's. Basically saying no, 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 no. Okay, here's a little bit of a concession. No, 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 no. You know that's what he's doing, and he is picking for his cabinet in the second term. He's picking a lot of aggressive fighters. You know, Hegel is by by most reports a kind of unpleasant loner guy who likes to get into tussles with people. Jack Lou, his choice for. Treasury Secretary is somebody who has enraged and outraged uh, Republicans with whom he has uh, negotiated over the last couple of years uh, from his perch at the White House, um, you know, and 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 onward, you know, so such that you know the choice of John Kerry as Secretary of State is the least controversial of the picks he's <laughs> <Yeah>. made. <laughs> so, right. so you know, that- thank God we have a grown up in there, John Kerry. 
So I'm just saying, like, you know, we have to look at this in the right way. Consider it in, consider it in reverse. Consider it like this. Do, the, do Democrats really want to carry a lot of water right now for, for, a, uh, for an annoying Republican who said really nasty things about a, about a gay ambassadorial candidate in 1998? Uh, a guy who said that he was against abortion in all cases, including rape and incest? Do they want to do that? Do they? Is that what they really want to be doing in 2013 is like having a big fight in which they have to defend right. Chuck Hagel? But a lot of people outside of Congress love it because what's really going on here is they hate us or they hate neocons or they hate Crystal or they hate the opposition to Hagel so much that they're really happy to have this fight. But I don't know if that's true of the senators who are going to actually have to vote on the nomination. Like, what? What? Why is this the water that they're supposed to carry? You know. And I will say this, and it'll be very telling over the next couple of years. Remember that in two thousand and five came uh, the Bush uh, nomination after he had won. You know, a second term came the Bush you know nomination of Harriet Myers to the Supreme Court and. Uh, National Review and, uh, you know, uh, I as a, as a writer at the New York Post, a lot of people on the right rose up to say this is an inappropriate thing to do. You have somebody who is a non-entity and a mediocrity. You are appointing to a lifetime tenure on the Supreme Court. You know, you cannot expect us to say that this right. is all right. And the question is, is there going to be a moment in which that happens to Barack Obama, or is the Democratic Party so much his creature yes. that it will simply do whatever he wants, whatever he wants? I think the second yeah. thing. Binders, Binders, yes, the second thing. The Binders, second thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's the second. It's the second. But isn't it? It's weird. I just before we leave Hegel, I, I know we don't talk about it too much, but um, just in terms of larger politics, isn't it strange when the when the when the when there's a senator nominated for one of those cabinet posts that requires Senate confirmation or another post? That you kind of know instantly what what the, whether it's going to be rocky or smooth, right? Because they all the senators all know that guy. So John Kerry, you know, they're gonna they're gonna they're not no one's gonna vote against John Kerry. They may think he's a dolt and a moron and a loser, but they don't hate him. Um, they're not gonna. There's always some weird personal stuff going on, like John Tower. Remember years ago, John Tower? Yeah, they hated was, John Tower. They hated John Tower so much, even though he was completely qualified. It was like nobody could – and you just knew. Nobody's going to stomach voting for that guy. And I kind of feel that might be the same thing with Chuck Hagel. There's just enough bad feeling personally that makes it impossible to hold your note, to, to, to let this thing go without – Without really putting some stink on him, you know. What That's I mean? why it would have been so awesome if somebody had nominated Arlen Specter to something, yeah, just to see right. the Senate turn right. on him, you know. Like, but everybody hated him. That was the problem. Like, yeah, like most universally, like, I, I, I don't want to like get anybody in trouble, but I actually met someone, and I'll, I'll keep it vague enough. Um, I was at a book signing this summer, and someone came up to me, and I was in Pennsylvania, and uh, they said. Oh, I used to work. They mentioned that they used to work for Arlen Specter. And I was like, oh, really? And she said, oh, no, no, don't worry about it. I couldn't stand him. And, and she started telling me stories. And then she said, wait, wait, I'll get my friend. She worked for him for 30 years. She really hates him. <laughs> and even his staff hated his guts. I mean, he was oh, just God, a terrible, man. terrible guy. He would make, uh, wouldn't he make um, 
one of his young staffers go to Union uh, Station and and uh, sit and get him a seat. So to, uh, for the train, um, and 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 to hold a seat for him, and then when he arrived, he would go to that seat and sit, and then the guy would have to run off, or if he could make it. And I think once the guy got there, there were no seats available. There's nothing. There, there were just the, the train was packed, and uh, a Spectre just, I mean, in front, just apparently was just unbelievably, unbelievably nasty. Oh, he was awful. He was awful. Everybody hated him. But it is it is worth pointing out that. Uh, until the nomination of John Tower to be Secretary of Defense in 1989, who was a sitting senator, unlike right. Hegel, uh, I, it was considered a safe thing to nominate a senator because right. of senatorial courtesy. And Tower lost because of a weird combination of Democrats wanting to hand – uh, or his name was withdrawn, whatever it was. No, I think he lost because there was a weird combination of Democrats who wanted to hand a defeat early to to uh, incoming President Bush and this bizarre attack against Tower by the late Paul Weirich and others because he he drank at dinner. I mean there was some weird – Right. Uh, Tower must have been disrespectful to Paul Weirich and a couple of other people and they decided that he was morally unfit – a guy who'd been in the Senate for you know, 26 years and had chaired the Senate, you know, Armed Services Committee for for eight, uh, was unfit to be Secretary of Defense. That was a very also, strange moment, but it also did. It was part of this whole expansion of the confirmation process into a just a general kind of, you know, crazy uh, political football thing. Right. Also, Sam Nunn hated his guts. That was part of it too. Right. And he was the guy who was. Kingmaker on all that stuff, right? Anyway. And he looked like a little—he looked like the guy of the Monopoly, uh, you know, looked a little bit like that Monopoly guy, kind of a shorter kind of looked like a, looked yeah. like a little billionaire in his, in his fancy suits and his pomaded hair. Um, I liked him. I thought he had a lot of style. I would have voted for. Him. There was a, there was um, a certain Papio Daniel thing about him that I kind of liked. Yeah, I like that too. Daniel. Papio Daniel from you know, Oh Brother from Where, uh, from Oh Brother Where Art Thou? Yeah, and now we shouldn't mention. Did anyone see the the obit for Charles Durning, the guy who played Papio Daniel? Oh yeah, the obit. one of the most impressive. I mean, I, I, oh he, yeah, uh, unbelievable. It was it was at the Normandy landing. He was at the Battle of the Bulge. He was a prisoner of war. Um, he lets some kid, some kid, some Nazi that's too young, looks too young, looks like he's just a kid. He decides not to shoot him, and the Nazi shoots him instead. And so Durning says, "All right then," and then kills him with a rock. Yeah. I mean, it was, a, it was a real badass. I had no idea. You know? But you know, I, I once fantastic. I once saw this very interesting thing happen. Talk about you know changes in generations. So there was this uh, television show on on the independent film channel called Dinner for Five or something like that, uh, hosted by the by the actor and director John Favreau, and where people sat around a table and had dinner together, and it was filmed as a kind of talk show. And for some reason on this show, there was Favreau and somebody else, and Burt Reynolds and Dom DeLuise and Charles Durning were sitting around the table with him. And uh, Burt Reynolds, you know, who had cast Durning in every, you know, in every movie that he ever made, um, said at some point, you know, uh, you know uh, uh, Charles is a real hero. Tell him about what happened to you, Charles. Tell him about, the, tell him about you know, uh, landing in Normandy. 
and Durning says, Bert, I don't want to talk about it. And he goes, no, 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 no. Tell it. People should know you're a real American hero. Too. And, and Durning says, Bert, I am not going to talk about that on television. Stop asking me now. And that was the end of the conversation because Durning, like a lot of those guys, Just was not comfortable right. with sort of, you know, with re- revelation about his personal conduct and his personal behavior and, you know, and being paid tribute to, or, you know, he didn't know whether he could control his emotions when he was talking about it and all of that. That was the first that I ever heard that he was as great a hero as he was. He's one of these people you barely know about, you know, one of the most decorated aviators of World War II was Ted Knight, uh, who, you know, later played <laughs> Ted Baxter on the Mary That's Teller right. Moore show. That's His name was Tadeusz Konopka, and he was, I believe, he shot down the second, he was the second or third most successful uh, Air, Air Force pilot of the Second World War. Also oh, didn't I, like I did to not, talk about it. I did not know that. That's, yeah. That is awesome. How, how many, how many did, did Murray get? <laughs> um, well, what's weird about that? I, I think I'm sorry. I think uh, Murray Murray uh, was uh, was uh, was you know was four F on account of psychological disturbances. That's so. right. That's right. Right. Um, uh, well, uh, well, the weird thing about uh, Gavin McLeod played with... Murray became an evangelical Christian. Though that's another that's right. interesting. That's right. I would I figure remember... he was also Captain Steubing. He was in the Navy, but anyway. Yeah, so the Merchant Marine. I do remember having a meeting with Burt Reynolds, and he, uh, and he and we were talking generally about what what uh, what sets like and what what experience his experience have been. And he he did say one strange thing, which I did not understand at the time. Although he no, he didn't say one strange thing. He said there were lots of strange things said. But one thing I, I it, it seemed to re- refer to this when he said. Um, he was working on a show, and there was a director there who was uh, disrespecting Charles Durning. And, uh, and he said, uh, you don't do that to Charlie Durning. You don't do that when I'm around to Charlie Durning. Charlie Durning. And he, and, and it, he seemed to imply that Durning had done something for Burt Reynolds specifically and uh, in the past that created this incredible loyalty. And then when I read the, the obit, um, uh, I sort of I, I figured it out. I figured it out. Uh, so now we're in, into, uh, into, uh, into old people uh, uh, and old people who were on TV. Uh, Jonah, explain to me what's happening with you and Downton Abbey. <laughs> I I like Downton Abbey. I think it's good stuff, and um, it's a good soap opera kind of deal. And I got into it late. Um, I was uh, I kept hearing about it, and I kept tra- I actually was bugging my wife to watch it. And then finally, when we were away on a trip, we um, we started watching it. You know, at the end of the day. Um, and we both sort of fell for it. I think it's a great show. I, I think it's a fascinating show that that, given that it, it sort of contradicts everything I've ever thought the British left believed in. You know, um, the servants are happy, the servants are loyal, the aristocrats are all decent and kind and generous. The viewers expected to root for the aristocracy, root for the landed gentry. Um, most of all, most of the villains, or at least the pains in the ass in the show. Right. Are sort of liberal reformers or left wing radicals or the gay manservant, you know, the gay footman. Um, That's kind of where I went off the beam on that show. It was episode one, frankly, when the, <laughs> when the gay the gay manservant is assigned to take care of the visiting uh, uh, handsome young ambassador from Turkey. Yeah, and and he makes a move on the ambassador from Turkey. 
and the ambassador from Turkey rebuffs him. And I thought to myself, well, this is not realistic. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, I have not watched the second of Downton Abbey, um, you know, because unlike you guys, um, I I have – I have uh, three jobs, so uh, you know I don't have time for the, all this you know nonsense that you you guys get to participate in because I'm I'm very busy. <laughs> uh, unlike some people who are gallivanting around in Tennessee and you know <laughs> that's, that's riding around on scooters and dancing around with with you know with uh, with uh, noodle strainers. Um, John, so I never actually seen Downton Abbey, but it is thing. worth noting. That the writer of Downton Abbey, Julian Fellows, may be the only Thatcherite working in 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 popular culture. Is that um, right? He is, is that a true? he is a self described Thatcherite. He was a an unsuccessful, struggling actor um, who sort of in his forties started writing and wrote Gosford Park for um, for Robert Altman, and you know uh, ended up. Winning an Oscar for that, and then writing this, and he wrote the the book to the to the muse of the Broadway version of uh, Mary Poppins. Um, he himself is a fallen aristocrat of some vintage, and he's he's himself is very right wing. So it makes sense that the show is right wing. Wow, I don't I don't know if it's so. Right there you go. It's, it's not left wing, you know. And and no he fought one Charles, and he and he and Charles Durning fought. No, nothing. I got now. Okay, <laughs> now there's another show I'm trying to get into. It's um, uh, it's probably way up, Joan. Probably like right, right there in your pantheon. Game of Thrones. Oh and yes. I've, I've watched the first three or four, and I like it. But I, 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 I look at the future, my future with this show, and I look at it with dread. Like I don't know <laughs> if I really, you know what I mean. I just don't know. Like oh, all this stuff going on, and I don't really care. But I, I, it's sort of interesting, but. I don't know. Well, is it a couple of things what? before John jumps in? Let me, you know, because we just both got berated about how how our lives lack pace and and obligations and responsibilities so much that we have time to watch things like Downton Abbey, and he doesn't. I want to, for the record, say that John, in the last six months, I believe, read all four hundred thousand pages of the entire Game of Thrones book series, when, uh, and. That took a, takes a lot more time than watching Downton Abbey. I'll just tell you right. that right now. Um, but I understand where you're coming from. It's it's. I personally, I, I I I love the series. I think it's great. But you know, I was always more of a Dungeons and Dragons kind of. I'm, I'm you know, I'm a level nine dork when it comes to this kind of stuff. So I, I I'm fine with it. Um, my concern is that it's going to get way too much into magic stuff because the appeal of the show is. In many respects, about how grounded it is in human nature. There's not a lot politics of politics. Yeah. yeah, it's politics. It is not sort of Tolkien esque, where there are good and evil people. It's that everybody's a little evil and everybody's a little good, and some people are just less evil than others. And the crooked timber of humanity is on full display. And uh, if it starts moving into Harry Potter esque magic that lets them get around certain plot problems. And the like, then I think it loses a lot of its charm for me. Well, uh, if it's accurate to the book, here's what's going to happen: absolutely nothing. <laughs> what's going to happen is after is that it, nothing happens for a long time, and then you know, basically, when he needs to have a plot development, he kills a central character off, and then 
then he shifts from one place to another and then you know yeah. there's dragons wandering around for no reason and there's there's a there's a uh, there's somebody's got magic and then she disappears and this thing and basically um uh it it is um a giant uh shaggy dog story with no conclusion and i say that having yes read uh read all five like books it feels like people keep turning themselves like winter is coming like, all right. Well, you know, I mean, I'm on TV. I, I, well, I winter, winter, by the way, winter, 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 does, winter, does, winter does come, but that'll, I think, is in the fifth season. So just so you yeah, know, like, I think winter should still come, fall. You know, you know, uh, uh, it's an old screenwriter's technique. It's like uh, when you when you find yourself saying, no, I'm saving that for season five or I'm saving that for episode two. It's like, no, 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 that should be your act break in episode one. Move everything up. Start it all faster. You know, start if you can start in the second act. Uh, so I'm, I'm feeling a little bit like uh, – you know what? Here's, here's the problem with these shows. I feel just enough curiosity that I want to read the synopsis of the whole series on Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alerts. That's all. I don't – it's like I, I don't want anything else. I just I, – I, okay, now I know who all the characters are. Just tell me what else happens to them I can move on. And I, I suspect I'm not alone in that. But listen, you know, I, I think – um, I was a big sports fan, and then I lost interest in sports progressively because of strikes. So, you know, the strikes in the 80s and the 90s, I lost touch with baseball, and then I lost touch with football, and that was the end of it for me, basically. Um, and for me, uh, I don't think I, I can say this strongly enough, that, that, that watching Lost did something very significant to my ability to watch television afterwards, because... You know, Lost was like reading a long, sprawling mystery novel that, in the end, doesn't tell you who killed, you know, who did it. Yeah, yeah. And and um, I find the demands of these series uh, too great to shoulder. It's like they promise you. Uh, all this portent and all this plot development, and then you know, it turns out that um, that it's all. A, a gigantic improvisation that they don't have it figured out and they don't know what to do with it and then that, then it all gets away from them. I, I once had a conversation at dinner. My wife works in television or did and um, we met a guy who worked on the show Damages or was one of the creators of the show Damages on FX with, with Glenn Close. And Damages was in its first season and I watched it and it had a very complicated structure where the whole thing was flashbacks and flash forwards and flashbacks and flash forwards and, and all of this. And the, and the pilot was really dazzling and basically set up a crime and you didn't know who did it but you saw all these things happening around it and there was a lot of portent. And the, the season ended and it was okay. It seemed to resolve itself okay. And I said to, the, to this guy, uh, that was amazing. Like you, what, After you finished the pilot, how did you know that you were going to be able to fit all that in in the, in the you know, 13 hours or something like that? And he said, we didn't have a clue what was going to happen. Right. <laughs> we made the pilot so that we could sell the series. We didn't have anything yeah. worked out. We were, exactly just, right. we were just tap dancing. Um, he's exactly correct. That's exactly and the that, way to do it. That's what, that's what happens on these shows. And – in the end, it's a con. It really is. I mean, I've, I've written about this. I've said, we've talked about it before. But it's a con. And Game of Thrones is a real con based on the books. And it's not. It's a con of a certain type because it's more like George Martin who wrote the books 
the books got away from him. Like it became a much bigger deal than he expected. Um, and the notion that, you know, he could write several of them and, you know, he could sort of get to Harry Potter numbers, you know, seven or eight, and that each one successfully would sell more and more copies. And he probably had some way of resolving the plot relatively early, and then he just lost control of it. He didn't know where, you know, he it was too modest what he had originally planned for the two or three books that he had planned to write. And so he just made it more and more and more and more and more complicated uh, you know, and then there's yeah. an entire book, the fourth book, which is the fourth season, in which literally nothing happens, and it's the longest of the books, where you start following secondary characters in a whole other geographic realm in this, you know, in do this imaginary them, world. Do any it's of them ever look? News. Do any of them ever ever look like they just they're freshly showered? There's a lot of there's a lot of uh, you know. Dirty faces, yeah, dirty faces and greasy hair, and, and you know, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I mean, two of the problems I had with, with Game of Thrones. The one thing, and I can't believe I'm saying this because the the twelve year old boy in me is screaming at me. Um, but there's too much sex. Wait, position. You, 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 would you when you say that you're speaking metaphorically about a twelve year old boy, right? I know you're home. Yes, alone. I am. Yes, okay. yes, yes. So yes, I'm just, yes, just making sure. You. Thank you for that clarification. But there's um, no 12 year old boy screaming at you right now because he. Well, and he's, de- and he's definitely just, not inside of me. Yeah, you need to, <laughs> you need to let him go. Um, uh, no, but the, uh, the, the, the sex position, I don't know if you've gotten to this, some of it, but there's, there's one scene in season one of Game of Thrones where the guy who's basically the, the brothel keeper who was the Mayor Carcetti and The Wire, yeah. right? And he has to fill in this whole sort of backstory about his motivations vis-a-vis um, some other characters. I don't need to get all the details. And clearly the writers just thought this was too boring and too difficult to do to keep the viewer's attention. So let's have a really pretty serious lesbian sex scene going on in the background while he's doing it, while he's explaining this stuff. And it is and, – and I, I can't tell you how much – I am not opposed to gratuitous nudity in popular culture, but right. it was just really over the top and kind of silly. Well, you know, that's um, an old, it's an old, it's an old Bogart. Uh, John Huston um, comes from an old Bogart John Huston uh, argument about. Uh, I think it was a Big Sleep or one of the movies they made together. It could have been Beat the Devil, uh, where um, there's this long paragraph of exposition that Bogart's got to give, and he doesn't want to do it, and and. Uh, and he says, well, you got to, you got to, Humphrey, you got to. And, um, and he said, well, we'll have to put two camels in the background humping <laughs> so that, so that and there's something to watch while this right. takes, takes place. But I, but I guess this is, this is the slightly more elevated version of that. And, and, and the, uh, the larger point about the whole thing with loss, I agree with John entirely. I mean, you would, if, 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 if you had a more rigorously centrally run Hollywood, someone would have said, you know, you guys are screwing the rest of us because you are so obviously betraying a trust with the viewers by what you're doing with Lost. Come up with a good ending or we'll kill you. Um, But there are some of these shows that I think a really good example of it, which I know a lot of people will really love, and I really loved the, I really enjoyed the first season despite some problems with it, um, is Homeland, right? Where they have this fantastic story arc to make it basically a 12-hour movie. Right, I mean that's what it should have been, and then right. in the end, um, uh, spoiler alert: turn off, turn hit mute for a second. Brody should have 
yes. blown up a vice president and died. Yes, right? yes, and, I totally agree. Um, and it's sort of the same thing. They had a similar problem with The Killing. The first season of The Killing on AMC was fantastic. But rather than solve the crime at the end of the 12th hour, they decided, no, we're going to have this thing just stagger on for a whole second season. And, and some of the – yeah, they, 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 you have to have the courage to kill some of your your main characters well, if, if, if that's the, how you tell the story. But the killing that's a good example of it, Jonah, because the killing the, the, that choice killed that show. That show is canceled now. Well, There's a lot of people wants- think that a lot of people think the same of Homeland that this second season yeah. has just gotten. I haven't watched it, but it's gotten. Yeah, well, that's my point. Is that the second season has gotten so ridiculous um, because they had to keep this main character Brody in the show for a second season and there was no place for him and you're are you sympathizing with him or not sympathizing with him are we hoping that he blah 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 and it just it made no sense it just fell apart and um the first season had this real verite this sort of wow this is kind of cool even though some things were really ridiculous like the geographic i mean i know there's a problem with lots and lots of movies and tv shows but the geographic sort of bs of it where like they, they have a scene that takes place at farragut north i think which, as you know, I know John knows, is like right by the Mayflower Hotel, downtown Washington, right. D.C. <laughs> and they treat it like it's this abandoned industrial park. You know, right, right, <laughs> you're like, right. what? You know, yeah, there's right. a lot of that kind of stuff in it that drives me crazy. You know? uh, it used to happen all the time on the old uh, show 24, where he'd be uh, in the, the uh, what's his name? Um, uh, Kiefer Sutherland would be downtown at the, the counterterrorism unit downtown. Well, quickly, something's happening in Monterey Park, and I'll, I'll be there five minutes. So like, you're like, really? You're not going to get out of the parking garage in five minutes, my friend. You know, like you, there, there, there's actually too much helicopter traffic to get there in five minutes. But it's just, it is what it's one of those. I, I did. I felt that way when I watched. Uh, I was I was riveted by Homeland, and then I'm just I'm just so I can't bring myself to watch any more of it. And I and I have Game of Thrones on my uh, thingy uh, on my iPad, and I just I also have Walking Dead. I think I'll just start Walking Dead. Uh, but I, I I suspect that I'm not the only one um i like walking dead i think this season this, this current yeah. season is the is the best of the three seasons you can never get you can never get sick of anybody anybody have any oscar outrages well i have a column uh in the new york post today this being friday as we're talking friday january 11th about the exclusion from the best director nominees of both Catherine bigelow of zero dark 30 and ben affleck of argo these two arguably being the best uh, or very close to being the best directed movies of the year and the two best movies of the year, perhaps. And it is very hard not to see, at least particularly in the case of Bigelow, a del- her deliberate omission, uh, though the movie was nominated for, for Best Picture, because of this preposterous attack on it as, as being insufficiently uh, uh, negative about, the, about waterboarding. Um, uh, and similarly, I think you can look at Argo, uh, the best reviewed movie of the year, 96% on Rotten Tomatoes, um, extraordinarily well directed. Um, and He's by the way, Ben Affleck. Yeah. Uh, bizarre. Um, who, who would have known anyway, he's made three pretty good. He made two very pretty good movies before this. And this is really a superb movie, one in which he is careful not to be too rah-rah, starts the movie out by saying that the Iranian hostage crisis is largely the fault of the United States. And, and yet, I think he was excluded from the nominees because uh, the movie is a, you know, ultimately, even though he doesn't want it to be, you know, basically is a tribute to the, Amer- to the CIA. Um, right. 
And so are these outrages? Yeah, they're well, outrages. Here's my outrage. Who, who cares? Who my cares? My outrage is uh, nominees for makeup and hairstyling, Hitchcock, yes. The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey, and Les Miserables, and not Lincoln. What, what? That is astonishing. The, what the, is Lincoln? Lincoln is only Lincoln. hair and makeup. That you know, I, I didn't. You're right. That is amazing. Actually, I didn't know. I didn't see that because I have to say, if you compare Lincoln to Gettysburg, which was made, you know, 20 years ago for TNT, which is a, you know, which is not a bad. It's four hours and a little boring, but um, there's some great stuff in Gettysburg. And the problem with Gettysburg is that you can't stop looking at the beards. You can't stop yeah, looking yeah. at Tom Berenger's beard and you can sort of see where the where the spirit gum was used to put it on and all of that and in fact the the beard work in lincoln is is astonishing like you really do these men really do look like they've been wearing these beards their whole lives and you know that they didn't grow them for it and the um, great thing about the phrase the beard work is it so sounds like it's a euphemism for something awful <laughs> and no you're right. actually talking about beard work you know yeah. <laughs> oh, I, you know, I, you know, Jonah's wife and kids are gone, so he, you know, he's going to get into the beard work. <laughs> you, you know, um, anyway, the whole thing is now a foregone conclusion because Lincoln is obviously going to win Best Picture, and and Spielberg is going to win Best Director. How and, did you not give it to Lincoln? It's such a diss to Lincoln. Well, you know, I, I, it's a very weird movie, in my opinion, because um, I think so it's, birthday. it's really, really, really smart. Uh, very, very, very well written by Tony Kushner, somebody I don't ordinarily admire. Um, Daniel Day-Lewis is extraordinarily good. The cast is extraordinarily good. And Spielberg nearly ruins it because he's full of that Spielberg-y, goopy, yeah. you know, the shot from under where everyone's looking at Lincoln as though, you know, he's E.T. And, 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 you know, they're, they're, and, you know, wacky, jaunty music while James Spader, who's the fixer, tries to fix things. And, you know, all these sort of efforts to make it more palatable, whereas the movie would have been stronger had it been, you know, really drained of all sentimentality. And right. and it ends badly because he you know he has to show the shooting and then he has to show the and then he goes back in time to the delivery of the second inaugural, and it's very strange. Badly he did cut, done, out, he did cut out that he did cut out that scene where Lincoln cures the guy with his glowing finger at the military oh, hospital. That was, a, it was, a, it was a moving. It was a. It How was a, crazy is? I mean, do they do Mary Todd properly crazy? No, actually, that's one of the weirdnesses is that Mary Todd, who was who was crazy and everybody knew she was crazy and she was like impoverishing him because she had lunatic spending habits and all this. Mary Todd is portrayed as a kind of canny political operator who helps him, though she has her difficulties and her difficulties are because her son died two years ago and she hurt her head in an accident and her head hurts. And and that that I think is a. Arguably, a mistake. You know that even though it's an interesting thing not to have to saddle her with a crazy wife, that's a little that's a little off. Um, that's but, the most amazing thing about him is that he was the great the greatest president ever, arguably, facing this facing what 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 would would kill any other man, insurmountable, a country in civil war, the bloodiest war in human history to that point. Uh, a, a, a rebellion in his own side, a political rebellion in his own side, constantly. Uh, a, a, 
absolutely no understand, no real clear idea of how they're going to get out of this problem. And and he also has got a crazy wife. So he, at the end of the day, when he puts his feet up, he's got this crazy old lady. Yeah, and uh, his son, know. and and one of his sons dies while he's in office. I mean, this is a really. I mean, yeah. Um, but I think stress. it's a, I think it's a very. It's a very strange thing because it is a movie that is almost ruined by its famous director who will nonetheless win right. the best director Oscar and the movie will win and Daniel Day-Lewis will, you know, I mean, there's no point even in having a race because he's going to win um, and like that. So, you know, but there, there, there weren't that many outrages, I don't think. Um, right. Well, I think we're done with the outrages for the week. Um I just wanted to say one thing. Does anybody else get this um, uh, on this Politico, uh, Politico.com, the, their email you know, alert? Anyone else signed up for that? I am not. I, I'm uh, not they, either. They have, uh, they, 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 they'll send you this thing called you know, breaking news, which is one of those things where um, it, it, it always depends. It, it really matters what you think is breaking news because I just got one. Uh, breaking news, uh, J- uh, Senator Jay Rockefeller is retiring. And um, I thought, is that really breaking news? Yeah, but I knew that at 10 o'clock in the morning. I knew that two yeah. hours ago. So why is that too. breaking news? Yeah. I just thought, by the way, he's, by he's, the way he's, that, can I share with you the most ridiculous piece of the, of the week? Yes. Uh, and also its provenance is very interesting. So uh, there is a writer named Jill Lawrence, uh, National Journal, which was for many years this $900 a month magazine that you were supposed to put in a three-ring binder because it had holes in it. You know, yeah, it came pre-hole punched, which I always thought was so arrogant. Pre-hole binders, punched. Yeah, binders, binders full of national journals. Anyway, so Jill Lawrence is the national correspondent of National Journal, which is now owned by the same guy who owns the Atlantic Monthly. Um, and uh, uh, Jill uh, Lawrence has a piece uh, about how um, it's time to put Obama uh, on Mount Rushmore. I saw it. I saw uh, it. Time to put him on Mount Rushmore. Uh, Obamacare, uh, ending don't ask, don't tell, and uh, preventing the country from spiraling into Great Depression uh, too, with his w- remarkable magical powers of uh, regeneration. Um, now, what's interesting about this is that you know uh, this would be uh, you know moronic idiocy uh, you know if it were a letter to the editor this is somebody who was probably paid a six figure salary to be the national correspondent of National Journal writing you know an op ed of you know of what <laughs> one might consider uh, um, you know twelfth grade might be okay in your Maybe. high school newspaper where you patted somebody on the head and said that's a Really nice try, and real, you know, congratulations on that. That'll really be good for your college application. <laughs> but I love that, like, like, go on Mount Rushmore for, for repealing "Don't Ask, Don't Tell." Really? That's the, you Mount Rushmore for that now? <laughs> that's, uh, if that's Mount Rushmore, if that's Mount Rushmore was was signing welfare reform by Clinton. What does he get? Does he get like a planet? <laughs> he gets a he gets a little concession down the bottom. Yeah. Is, what is there even what about Medicare? Bush Bush did Medicare Part D. I think that's probably good for yeah. you know maybe one of the moons of Jupiter. He could exactly have right. Exactly right. One of the early the, the early Clinton foreign policy initiative, the Partnership for Peace. Hey guys, I, I will not I will not sit here <laughs> and have you guys badmouth the Father of the Year. 
You saw that Bill Clinton was named Father of the Year. No, what? Yeah, that's not a that's not a joke. I said that to an audience the other night, and the audience wouldn't let me continue because they're like, "That's not true." I was like, "No, no, it's true. It was it was named it was named two days ago." Whatever that group that names the Father of the Year, Bill Clinton was named Father of the Year. And wow. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. Like, so because of him <coughs> diddling the help when he was in the White House and lying about it. Um, and lying about some other things as well when he was in the state house, um, he can never. He had his legal license taken away. And he can never practice law again. But he wasn't barred from ever being eligible to be father of the year, which I just I just think is fascinating. I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Like, also, strange thing. Like, why this year? Has he? Has there been? I mean, I guess. I mean, yeah, his daughter's grown and married. I mean, like, what is he doing as a father these days? I mean, your your responsibilities as a father kind of. Diminished once you yeah. married off your kid. You know? but what I love about that is that it, 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 it gives you. I mean, I mean, knowing that you, Jonah, right now are facing sort of a, a blissful time by yourself, where you could do, you could get up to any any amount of mischief. I mean, you you could still be, you could still make father of the year, at least father of the day, right? You know, I mean, yeah. something interesting. I don't know. I, don't, I think that's the most egregious thing. I mean, we are through the looking glass. We're talking about trillion dollar coins and Bill Clinton's father right. of the year. You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly it's like, right. <laughs> it's like the seventh seal of the apocalypse has been broken and, you know, you got to check out the window to see if it's raining frogs. I mean, it's, it's some weird stuff is going on. But anyway. So the goal is they mint the tr- trillion dollar coin and then a bunch of a, 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 a funny ragtag bag of misfits uh, sets, uh, sets their cap to steal it. It's a heist, I tell you, a heist. It's a heist. <laughs> but of course, it has to end with some like trampy old broad on the deck of the Titanic throwing it away, right? Or something yeah. like that. You know, or- Look at this trillion dollar coin, worthless. And it, 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 fling, it flings itself into the, into the briny deep. That's the last one. Or, or thrown into a, uh, a Santa Claus's Salvation Army um, right. coin pot, you know? Yeah. That's uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Mr. Clooney. I represent a Russian businessman with a particular interest in platinum coinage. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Your interest interests me. Yeah. Um, all right, uh, fellas. All right, guys. By the way, I think we should mint the trillion dollar coin and flip China for it. I like it. That's what do you yeah, think? I think we get a whole – that's it. Basically, double or nothing, you know, get out of this. Walk away from the table. Yeah, yeah. That's a good. Uh, that's 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 that. That is a that is probably the only actually sound debt elimination plan I've heard. Mint the coin, flip China for it. Um, I think we should. I like I like Pod's most egregious article of the week thing. I think that should become a thing where we all come with our okay. worst article of the week thing. But anyway. I gotta go. I gotta, I, you know, I know. I know. John doesn't think I have a job and that I have time to watch all those TV shows, but I actually have some work I gotta go do. Well, that's, yeah, that's, I know. I know. You got to. It's very important. You got to. You got to put uh, put uh, Bob Seger on the uh, on the stereo and do, <laughs> do, do a dance. Yeah. All right, fellas. Till we till we meet again. All, all right. Love. Bye. Bye. Yeah. Three coins in the fountain. Each one seeking happiness Thrown by three hopeful lovers Which one will the fountain bless? 
three hearts in the fountain Each heart longing for its home There they lie in the fountain Somewhere in the heart of Rome Which one will the fountain bless? Which one will the fountain bless? Ricochet. Join the conversation. Through the ripples, how they shine. Just one wish will be granted. One heart will wear a valentine. Make it mine. Make it mine. Make it mine. Is it? It's a nutcracker. We thought you'd like it. Good. To crack your nuts.